but but yesterday it was typical Mississippi weather. Yeah. It was very humid. Humid yeah. tornadoes, you know, the works. Yeah. That's just Tuesday yeah. here. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Deer Grow. Man, it's almost food plot season, Jared, and Deer Grow is one of those products that has really changed the way that we plant food plots and the success we've seen from them. No doubt. I've been, you know, trying to plant food plots my, my entire you know, whitetail hunting career, which is a little shorter than yours, but the minute that I started or that I, you know, I realized that I could get Deer Grow back into some of these remote plots where I couldn't get lime or fertilizer, especially in the 50-pound bag, you know, format, mm-hmm. so everything was changed. You know, I could get into these spots uh, moving forward with a, with a backpack sprayer, and that's since escalated to these 40 or 60 uh, gallon sprayers and we're doing upwards of you know five to ten acre food plots just with your grow and having phenomenal success yeah and i mean with the price of fertilizer lime diesel everything this year i mean what better way to get in there and grow a successful food plot at about a third of the cost check out deer grow at deergrow.com and we're back hey hunter podcast episode seven zero yeah welcome the 70 Good to see you, man. Less and less these days, a little bit, but yeah, we're breaking out. It's April seventh. It's April. Oh April, my god! I just April showers for sure, man. I don't think we've seen sunshine uh, in two three weeks. I ain't seen the sunshine in. Yeah, I've. Uh, it's raining. I've, Is it raining right now? I don't know. I'm in like a massive depressive hole to try to <laughs> like. It, it's seriously. It's just you're you're finally out of winter, and you're like, okay, like I'm ready to go. I'm, I want to do some management stuff. And then, like, it's going to be, like, 40 in snow, like, all weekend. I'm like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Dude, it's not been good. We, I mean, obviously, we, we run an ice cream shop there, so we're, we're watching the weather, and uh, there hasn't been any nice days. No. Like, no. We were, we were in Kentucky this past weekend, and it was at least sunny, but it was still, like, low to mid-50s um, for, like, youth turkey season and stuff. And we got into a bird Saturday morning, but... Um, it was at least nice to be outside and like soaking up some, some vitamin D there, but um, I know you were so pleasant to talk to after that. You're just like, dude, listen, t- life is great. I <laughs> told Emily, I was like, I came home and I was like, man, I like, we, we just got home and I was like, I, like, I feel like I finally broke out of it. And then now I can feel myself nose diving Sucking back into it. Well, it's just like, I go outside and I'm like, where the hell is the sun? Yeah. It just doesn't exist. It's up there. Oh, it's just behind them clouds. <laughs> it's there. I, I hope we're going to see some. Uh, this weekend is that youth turkey hunt I've been talking a lot about. And Ugh. so finally, whether whether it rains or it's, I don't care. Sunday looks okay. Mon- uh, Saturday doesn't look great. Okay. Um, but I'm looking forward to just spending a few days yeah. in the woods. That's, that's been I mean, warranted. The, the, uh, we talk about it a lot. I mean, obviously you and I aren't like hardcore turkey hunters, but it, it's good to be out and doing stuff. Um, birds are real tight-lipped in Kentucky this past weekend have been even around here. I've heard a couple birds, um, but not many. And like the weather, it's Ohio's youth opener this weekend, obviously. That's right. Yep. Um, They're getting after it, man. I've, I've seen a bunch of strutters on the side of the, fi- on the field. Still very probably flocked up, I would assume, at this point. I don't know. Uh, but, Dad said he saw 10 different flocks yesterday driving the farm. Yeah. It's been, dude, it's been cool. A lot of uh, neighbors have chipped in and said, hey, I want to be a part of this. Cool. Uh, so we've got like thousands of acres to cover oh that'd be awesome it, it's a great uh turkey hunting is a is probably the best gateway it was the first hunt i ever went on when i was 12 years old um and actually hunting is we went turkey hunting and you know it's just because instantaneously in the morning you're in action right either birds are gobbling on the roost or you're not seeing anything you might as well go trout fishing or crappie fishing mm-hmm. um so yeah it, it's kind of cool when you get into this thing because you know for kids you know, I, I said this about my kids and deer hunting, like, especially in an afternoon, like we get in there, you know, two, three hours early 
like we're waiting for like the last half hour usually, you know, and it's like two hours of nothing and like they get bored real fast, you know? And so the cool thing about turkey hunting, especially in the morning is like, you know, you're in action like right away. It only goes downhill from there, if anything. Yeah. It's a very different experience, you know, calling at animals, you know, coyote hunting the same way. Mm-hmm. I've heard it compared to, to elk hunting, which yep. I get it. Yeah. I get, you know, just the communicating with the animal, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm so anyways, I'm looking forward to that hunt and it will be nice to get outside. That's for sure. <laughs> well, the cool thing about April is, um, for most of the country, if you're planning any kind of spring food plots, uh, and when I say spring, I'm talking more of perennial type stuff. It's time, like it's go time to either start be planning it, uh, planning it or planting it. Um, and it's also a good strategy time for any of your summer plots. Mm-hmm. And so we've got, uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland from the Mississippi state deer lab back on, um, really to dive into these discussions. And the cool thing is Bronson just told us that he and Craig Harper just recorded a warm season food plot, um, podcast on the deer university. Um, so if you haven't gone and downloaded or looked at that, you should probably go do it. Um, but we really want to get into this discussion because I think you and I have had mixed Mixed feelings, mis, uh, mixed kind of advice even. There's on, just different opinions on how to go about yeah, some of this and stuff. I, I don't know, you know, and it's because every every instance is so different, right? I mean, even your farm in Ohio is so different than my farm in Ohio. You know, you can't yeah. just blanket statement and say, yes, plant soybeans or no, don't plant soybeans. You can't. But and just to for the sake of conversation, to put them into like two different boxes, if we want to do that, is like one approach seems to be very targeted on the deer season. Let's you know call it the, the, the yeah. Jeff Sturgis approach, the herd influencer type of a mindset where it's mm-hmm. like uh, all of your effort and all of your emphasis is really put on to um, maximizing the deer season, October yeah, and, and, 90 and days, November. really. Um, yep. And so there's no warm season food plots happening there. There's, there's very little happening to draw deer, uh, you know, or to even acknowledge their presence during the mm-hmm. summer months or, or anything outside of the deer season, which mm-hmm. has paid off obviously for Jeff and a lot of his clients. And, sure. and I know there's a lot of people adopt. There's that. a unique strategy in that. And I mean, I, I, when he lays it out, there's a logical thinking around why no he doubt. does that. No doubt. And on the other side, you have more of a, a traditional or old school, even call it a, a QDMA a, approach towards mm-hmm. Which is what Bronson and Craig management. are going to talk about. That's yeah. what Don Higgins preaches a lot. Which for um, a long time has been you know more, more popular. I think that's been kind of the general approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's been, I think, more in the recent years that guys like Jeff have said it's not necessary. You know, well, here. yeah. And where I want to dive in with Bronson is... <clears throat> If I think about food plots in general, I would say that probably 80 plus percent of food plots are only planted in the fall, meaning 80% of the guys who are planting food plots plant a fall food plot for hunting. Yeah, yeah. If that was the case, wouldn't we have been herd influencers for a long time now, whereas the small minority of us are thinking about planting spring and summer plots, um, which is kind of, to me, the newer fad. Um, yes, maybe the outlier on that though, or kind of like the overarching theme is that I don't think those food plots are having nearly as a big an impact as like we, we would hope, you know, it's, it's just, it's just one thing that you've done. Yep. Uh, there's a, a, a there's a remaining 90% of management and whether it's catered towards mm-hmm. the deer season or year round, um, you know, that's, I think where the differences lie. Cool. Well, let's bring Bronson in and get our discussion cranking. Well, hello, sir. Hello. Good morning. Good morning from uh, Mississippi. Is it humid down there yet? Uh, it, it's it comes and goes mm-hmm. right now. We, we currently have some some cool weather. Thank you from from up north. Yeah, so we've, you're welcome. 
but but yesterday it was typical Mississippi weather. Yeah. It was very humid. Humid yeah. tornadoes, you know, the works. Yeah. That's just Tuesday. Yeah. Here. You guys have had uh, quite a bit of strong storms passing through there in the last couple of weeks, it seems like. Yeah, it's been brutal. We, we've been really lucky here where I'm at. But yeah, all throughout the south from uh, Louisiana to Georgia, been a yep. lot of tornadoes touched down. Crazy. That's that spring weather in the south, you know, comes comes with the territory, I guess. That's right. So Bronson, um, we kind of were just talking here a little bit, um, you know, and I know you recently made a trip to Illinois um, where you did part of a deer store class at Whitetail Properties. You've uh, met up with Don Higgins and did what's Don? It's not a master class, but what, what does Don call his classes up there? I think that is what is he it a master it. class. Yeah, I believe so. Okay. So, you know, we talk about how different it is from Starkville, Mississippi to where you were in Illinois. And, you know, there's a lot of people that make generalizations about food plots or even habitat. Um, And I feel like it's so case by case specific that it's hard to make those broad stroke statements, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Well, you, you can make a broad stroke statement and, uh, I think they're probably right most of the time. There's always exceptions, and I'm going to go ahead and drop it early. Here you go. It depends. Mm -hmm. Context matters. But Mm -hmm. um, the the biggest thing that I saw was, uh, you know, it's not like this is new information. It was just really good for me to to see it and touch it, is uh, the drastic difference between the Midwest and, say, the Southeast is going from a uh, food rich cover limited environment to 180 degrees in the South mm-hmm. is cover is not limited. Now, really good cover can be limited, but in general cover is everywhere and high quality food is limited. So literally 180 degrees difference. And then, uh, how you set up your hunt, uh, is very, very different. It's really a lot easier to identify, in a, in a scarce cover environment where the deer are going to be. Yeah. And uh, that is difficult in the Southeast. I think, yeah. And I, I think, am I understanding that right? You're saying in the Midwest, that the cover is scarce. Absolutely. Well, where I was at in the Midwest cover is very limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? Just because it's primarily ag. And so you got what small choppy blocks of, of timber is the cover you're referring to, I guess, or brush. Exactly. I mean, I think you can scout in general from Google Earth and you're going to be right most of the time of um, if I'm looking at this landscape from above, where are deer going to be and where are they going to move from here to here? it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. And I think we've had that conversation with a lot of people in ag country, you know, even upstate New York, New we York were talking of, yeah. and, and it's literally, you know, 15 to 25 acre blocks of timber in the sea of a thousand acres of ag ground. And, you know, we know just by, you know, research that the Mississippi state deer lab has done and other universities. I, I mean, think about how much a deer in particular, a buck moves, you know, he's in and out of those blocks, pretty quickly, but he's covering a ton of ground because it's, you know, hundreds of yards between each of those timber blocks. My farm is the perfect example of that. You have little blocks of timber, you know, and and a lot of food in between. And it's like, dude, if they're not in that wood block, there's 15 other ones that they could be in. Yeah. 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 And I think when you see that fragmentation, Bronson, um, and I know you, you specifically, we talked about it. I can't remember with who, but you specifically have been sharing some stuff on social media 
um, looking at some of the uh, GPS collared deer and looking at their bedding areas in some of these more call it fragmented areas, right? Where there's either pasture or ag ground and, and block things. And it's, it, I guess you guys had laid that out there under the um, assumption that people were saying, well, you know, I know where that buck beds. And, and coincidentally, we probably know one of the areas they bed, but not where that buck is usually bedding. Exactly. And it's an issue of scale. And, and let me qualify this up front. <clears throat> We're literally this fall, um, we, we have a student and that's going to be a major part of their research. So we just took a couple of examples and shared them on social media, but we're going to be literally using our entire population of GPS collared bucks. And we're going to do a, a far more thorough and critical analysis of that. But just as an example, um, you, you have to take scale into consideration. And, and what I mean by that is there was not just this one particular spot on the landscape that this particular buck would go to as its bedding area. So it was like within a, a week's time, it was, you know, 10 or, or 15. I don't remember exactly the number, but a lot of different bedding areas. But but you can't sit here also and say it's always going to be like that in every single environment because you could structure the cover differently or cover may not be developed enough to where you may have a situation where the buck is going to bed in this spot or that spot more often than not, because it's the only cover that's available. Mm -hmm. So all we can say right now is in that context, that particular buck had a lot of different choices. And because of that, he was able to use a lot of different bedding areas. If, if you switch it up and there's only two or three places on your property where there's enough cover, then you may have a very reliable area where they're going to be every single time. Yeah, that what, makes sense. What do you think outside of, you know, obviously food sources and, uh, you know, once you get into October, November, doe populations and, and just rutting activity in general, what, what do you think is motivating a buck to bed in, in different areas fr from, from day to day or even throughout the day? I think it's going to be a, a, a combination of exactly what you just said. I think it's going to be security. I think that's first and foremost is, is survival. I think it's going to be within a proximity to food. Yep. Uh, why walk five miles when you can walk 500 yards to find an ideal spot? And then, of course, coming up to and during the rut, it, it's going to be these focal areas of where does are at historically where that buck knows he can go and and heat check different does and, and see who's in heat and who's in not. And then obviously like wind direction and, and weather factors as sure. well, you think as a part of that? Yeah. yeah. I, I think what's interesting too, and you know, I don't know Bronson, if it's necessarily been a, a newer craze, maybe in the deer world versus like the upland game world and stuff, but you know, let's, let's talk switchgrass for a little bit. Right. And, and really in the perspective of kind of what you've talked about, which is, you know, Illinois and in, in that ag ground looking place versus like a South or even, you know, a mountain area in the Northeast, you know, switchgrass is one of those things that we've had back and forth where you talk to a Jeff Sturgis and you're like, okay, I get it. I can plant switchgrass. I can establish it fairly quick and it's going to give cover. And then we go and flip the switch to, you know, our buddy Craig Harper and Craig's like, listen, you know, if you've got old open ground and pasture and stuff, you know, kill it off and then just let it go, let it do its thing naturally. And that's going to give you the best cover. Um, do you think that's a, a, a situational, I guess, type of thing uh, in terms of where you're at and what your goals are? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, a generalization I was thinking from visiting Illinois was it, it certainly appears that it's more common in the Midwest that you're going to plant your cover. Mm-hmm. seems that that's far more common. You're planting your cover, whereas in the South, you're cutting your cover. You're setting back succession. You're opening up the forest. Uh, succession happens very quickly down here. You know, within within three or four years, you can have a very, very developed patch of cover. And in, in this environment, you're going to have to take an active role to manage that. So let's compare and contrast with, say, switchgrass is, uh, yeah, you, you can plant that quarter acre, half acre, 10 acres, wh- whatever. And you are going to have a, a patch of cover that bucks, depending, relatively speaking, what's around them, they're, they're going to use that. It's not offering food. You see, there's a lot of little nuances here. Mm-hmm. So you could say, you know, well, the, the, the patch of switchgrass, it's not offering food. It's offering only cover. Well, that can be good or bad, depending on your perspective. Your perspective may be, I don't want my cover to offer food because I want to manipulate where that buck is going between cover and food more easily. But you could also have, say, here in the South, where there may be a lot of different cover choices on the landscape. And then here's a cover patch that's going to offer cover and food you can see that's going to be a better choice mm-hmm. for, for bucks to bet in. So it, it, it just really depends on where you're at and what you, you, you want. Bronson, we've had, uh, you know, so Jeff Sturgis, as we've said, is kind of the guy, in our opinion, leading the charge on, you know, th- that type of management style and especially switchgrass. And so like his uh, assessment would, would be in agreement with you. He would say, yeah, uh, all, all the way to the point where he's like, yeah, these bucks won't bed in a, pocket of switchgrass that doesn't have food in it so he's planting switchgrass and literally carving out many micro food plots you know throughout it uh in an effort it seems like to achieve a similar result as as prescribed by a guy like craig harper who's like just kill it let it grow and come back naturally and it's it's obviously naturally going to have those forbs and you know that that food incorporated into it so you've got two different styles of trying to achieve ultimately it does seem that there's a consensus that food has to be a part of cover or bucks won't use it, it uh, given the option. No, I, I, I disagree. Okay. I, I don't think food has to be a part of it. It, it all depends on your landscape. Mm-hmm. So you can have a situation where food is everywhere around you in, in some amount or, or degree. And what you are seeking to do is develop the ideal cover. That's whether it be for thermoregulation, whether it be for screening or whatever. And it might be in some instances that planting something like switchgrass is going to provide that. And then you are strategically going to put the cover where you want it relative to food all around you. What Craig, Dr. Harper is just saying, there's a lot of ways you can achieve growing cover and you don't have to always plant it. So you can still have that same area and just disturb the soil and let natural succession, naturally occurring, the seed bank grow and provide that cover as well. But by also doing so, you may have to manage it. There are going to be some species you sure. don't want. There's going to be some that mm-hmm. you do, and you're going to have to play more of an active role in that and maintaining it the way you want it. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point, and, and especially to that I don't know, call it the specific look on a, on a piece of property or, or in an area and that, 
you know, if you've got a lot of food, if you've got big food plots or, or you've got a lot of ag around you and stuff, and there's pretty much accessible food all over the place. And the fact is, is you could plant switchgrass and that deer is going to bed there. They have the cover and they're going to move to food and, you know, transparently that make them, that makes them more vulnerable to a harvest, which is what you want. And dairy, yeah, sounds great. But I mean, dude, it wasn't it Jeff that explained to us. He's like, dude, I've, I've planted big, big blocks of, uh, of switchgrass. And if there's not food in it, he's like, they, they won't use it. He's like, they'll bed maybe on the outside perimeter of it. Um, yeah. And, and I think that he, you know, when he's done that, I think he's saying that they will use it, but food has to be close. And, and this is where I think we, at least for me, I run into some counter arguments to a lot of Jeff's strategies is most of the farms that I manage or that I hunt have no ag around them. Ag doesn't exist. And so when it comes down to it, like I've got natural food and I've got planted food. And so where he's at, he's got ag all over the place. And so those deer can bed in those things and usually have accessible ag until it gets harvested. Right. At which point, if there's no right. if there's no agricultural food, they're not going to use that switchgrass because there's no food, period, around them. Well, I guess let's talk about just like deer behavior real quick so we can get better understanding on it. Like, I mean, Bronson, what, what, what do you know or what do you believe to be true about especially bucks feeding habitats throughout the day? You know, which seems like that would happen in, in a bedding environment. Does that question make yeah, sense? I, I would say, and again, I, I, you can never make a rule. Mm-hmm. with the deer or especially with bucks, especially with bucks that are pressured in an environment where they're disturbed, but very, very generally, I, I would say you're going to have two primary feeding bouts. And I, I mean, those, uh, they're, they're on a mission and this is outside the rut. They, they have a different mission sure. when, it's, when it's during the rut, but you're going to have a, around sunup and around sundown, you're going to have a dedicated, I want to fill my rumen feeding bout, mm-hmm. but also there's going to be one or two more throughout the day. Um, so, so for example, you may have a situation depending on pressure and depending on what's available where, um, you know, before sunup at sunup, et cetera, a buck is moving from point a to point B for the mission of feeding a feeding bout. And then afterwards it's going to go back bed down and ruminate well, now we start getting to maybe mid-morning, uh, early afternoon, et cetera. They may get up, and you can see this with the GPS data easily. They may get up and tinker around yep. and have a, a very small-scale feeding bout, but they're more or less going to stay near that cover. And then around, you know, when the sun is beginning to set, whether it's two hours before, hour before, or while the sun is setting, they're going to get up and move and have another big major feeding bout. So a lot of that is just going to depend as well. How far are they going to move from the cover to the food? That depends on the proximity. Are they going to get up in or around the cover to have one of those smaller scale feeding bouts? That depends on if there's food around them, you know, adjacent to the cover. But, But generally you can, you can think about that, that, two major feeding bouts when you normally think that they are, and then, and then, uh, usually one or two more throughout the day. Which I think answers a few questions like, you know, case in point, that's why we don't hunt, uh, you know, a bed food pattern midday. You know, we get out of the stand and go have our own lunch, you Mm -hmm. know, and don't expect them to move very far. Um, but I think it also, uh, would indicate at least, like you said, generally, I know it's not the case all the time that like, they're going to prefer, 
uh, a bedding location that offers some sort of, of food for these midday, mm-hmm. you know, snacks. That's what I was going to say. You know, it, that tends to be why, in my mindset, I always lean towards kind of a natural regeneration. Me too. Yeah. Um, because you're going to have those briars and those forbs. And anybody that's watched a deer... <clears throat> do that whether we had one on camera I had, dude i have a lot you know what i mean think about how many times you've been in the stand even in october yep. and, they, and they come back mid-morning and you watch them bed down bed down first of all you know how cool is that to, to witness and then almost every time that i've seen that happen you know oh, after an hour position. hour and a half yeah they get up and then they're, like, what are they doing they're eating over there for another hour and yep. then they'll lay back down yeah you know? yeah and i think it's a critical piece there to understand because obviously you know, if we move into that fall time frame and that hunting time frame uh, of when we want to be herd influencers, in Jeff's opinion, like it's got to be during daylight hours. You know, okay. so I mean, it, this is, and John Eberhardt will tell you, he's one of the guys who I've followed on this and he's killing pressured deer. But John is going into a lot of these bedding areas with food and he's sitting all day on opening day and he's killing those deer at midday when they do these small mini excursion type pieces. And see, and dude, I, I envy the ability to do that. But per what Bronson's saying about seeing, uh, you know, bucks bed in 10, 12, 15 different spots, I, I've never been able to be like, this is where I'm going to kill that deer. He's going to come back here at 930 in the morning yeah. and it's going to happen. Yeah. Guys have done it, you know, and I, man, I wish I could figure that style out and, and adopt that. But it's like, it's so hard to isolate those, that bedding area. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, Jared, you could <clears throat> you could do a, a better job at that, depending on what the, the landscape is offering you. Okay. And again, ju- just getting back to me being having the, you know, the boots on the ground and really seeing it, you know, whether it be just general luck or whether you are manipulating your hunting landscape, you, you can set it up where the one or two or three ideal places where a buck is going to want to be, let's say, at midday is this particular spot. And maybe that spot, I'm not talking about the exact, you know, square yard where it's bedding. It might be a couple acres, but you know that it's going to be bedding within that couple acres and you know where your primary food source is going to be. And then you're just setting up in in between. Sure. And, And of course, not disturbing them, staying out of the bedding area. Yeah, no doubt. There's something that I've wanted to do for a long time, and I don't have a, <clears throat> a good reason for why I haven't done it. Um, but but I think a, a lot of people could benefit from this, and that's setting up cellular trail cameras on a bunch of your known buck beds, mm-hmm. the, the beds. You know, I know there's, you know, oftentimes sure. a, a few of them in an area, but dude, how much could you learn from, you know, the, the, this goes back to like, I hate the general statements about deer hunting. It's like, this is a, a literal animal. It's a, it's a specific animal that is out there it's in the woods it's laying down in a specific location and like it seems so mysterious yeah. you know it's just like all these weather apps and all these you know the rut when it's how's the moon you know it's like all yeah. these things are just literally an animal laying out in mm-hmm. a patch of dirt there you know and, and the, the camera is like a very advanced piece of technology that can along with your gps collars and stuff that can tell you that deer is is bedding here and then you can make your own um observations or assessments about the wind is doing this the weather's doing that you know per seasonality uh the rutting he's not rutting the food sources here yeah and you can really dial that back to you know like you said uh fine tuning like hey where are they at um yeah and i think that's to bronson's point about individual deer especially like i've seen certain deer that are very um repetitious in their process you know it doesn't matter if it's september or if it's november like they they just kind of do the same thing they come from the same area 
And then I've seen other ones where it's like, I can't, I can't get a beat on the steer if I tried, you know? And, and it's almost, it is that mysterious because I'm looking at a map and thinking like, why would he come this way? And th- like, he did this same conditions last week. And it's just individual variation, just like us. Like we don't drive always the same way home every time. Yeah. Who knows why? Something in our brain says, let's go a different way. I know. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Hoyt Archery. Dude, where would we be without our Hoyt bows? Probably shooting crossbows. Or, or a Matthews, <laughs> yeah. One and the same. Yeah. But in all seriousness, we love being Hoyt guys because you stand out. When you're in this room full of other people that shoot these other types of bows, I feel like the Hoyt guys just stick out. Dude, it's just a legit bow. I mean, th- th- especially that carbon riser, man. I mean, I-, I know that they've got several other aluminum lines as well. But for, for me, I'm shooting that RX-5 uh, in the carbon model. They've since come out with RX-7. And uh, I can't tell you how much I love being a Hoyt guy amongst a C4 of Matthews guys. So we're out there, I think, pr- proving them wrong, shooting 80 pounds and uh, you know, killing stuff. Hey, man, if you want to get serious, get Hoyt. Another component to that, and uh, it's really interesting to see these intersect in terms of the feedback over the years you get from hunters. And I mean, really dedicated hunters that are using their cameras strategically and documenting what bucks are sighted when and where. And then what we're getting with these GPS collar studies. And that's this uh, about one third, at least down here in our country, about one third of these bucks have complete shifts in their home range. Uh, and it's usually pre-rut, you know, it's, it's right after the bachelor groups break up and oh, they will completely too. shift. And then even during deer season yeah. or in the post rut or something like that, you'll have a buck that they literally may set up their home range four, five, six, in some cases, 15 miles away. Wow. And so it is literally a, it was not here on my property and now it's going to spend several days on my property. And the same thing is you start scratching your head. What did I do wrong? I've been seeing this buck every single day and poof, it's gone. But then if you start noticing, unless it gets killed then you start noticing, you might see this exact same pattern literally within a couple days up to a week to where the buck may show up on your property again the, the next year. Yeah. So wild. We talk about they, it all the time. Why they do it. We, we had a, a light bulb moment this year. I think we're, uh, I don't know where you stand on this exactly, but w- I think we came to the realization or like at this point we're believing obviously, and it's been known for a long time, the deer shift from, from summer to, to fall primarily based on food sources, like mm-hmm. around the time they shed their antlers, maybe short, shortly after. Yeah. Uh, Crops are getting harvested. Acorns are falling. What would you call that? Maybe even like a end of September, October first. Yeah, type it's of a pre rut. It's still a pre rut shift. And then, dude, it seems like it happens again, like on post rut. No, yep. No, no, no. I was gonna say to rut. Like it seems like a lot of these deer go in rut in a location. Oh, yeah. And then I think they do it again post rut due to thermals. At least in our area, yeah. maybe not so much in Bronson's yeah. area, but in the Midwest and the Northeast, like here's the biggest sign of it is finding a shed. You could have that deer on your property all year and then never, ever find his sheds. And guess what? It's because he left. He's not there. There was no late season food and there was no late season thermal cover. They're gone. Um, Very much like a summer pattern. You know what I mean? They're they're going to go back to, and it's even tighter because it's obviously tied to a a more limited. Well, and this is kind of where I wanted to go with this discussion because it's, it's frustrating in that, you know, Bronson, when I was in school and we were learning, we were talking and we were meeting with landowners 
you know, a lot of the thought process in many areas is I want to try to manage deer 365, right? I want to be able to provide food and I want to be able to provide cover year round. And I think with the right property, obviously, and if, if you have the right budget, you can do that. You can plant for summer, you can plant for fall, you can make sure you've got things in the late season, you can make sure you have good thermal cover for that late season if you're in a colder area. You can manage that herd 365 days. And and the reason you want to do that is for a couple of things. Number one is you want to be able to ensure the protection of those deer, especially if you're trying to manage for older age class bucks. You want to be able to influence the nutrition that those deer are taking in. You want them to have the best nutrition to produce antler size quality and, and have better recruitment rates for fawning and healthier animals overall. Um, but and it's fun. It makes us feel good yeah. when we kill it. It's like, man, I yeah. raised that thing from a... But you, you hear, I think, from a lot of people out there now, uh, and not picking on Jeff, but Jeff is a big one of it. He doesn't care for nine months of the year. He cares about three months of the year. Uh, and yeah. I understand well, that. Not that it, he doesn't care. It's just, he, he doesn't think it has an impact the way that it's been promoted. Correct. And so, you know, when I was kind of coming into as a wildlife biologist, I was thinking perennial food plots, you know, warm season annuals, cool season annuals. Like I'm thinking full picture in in addition to cover. Um, and that seems like a lot of people maybe have, have, I won't say skipped out, but they've left that kind of thought process. Bronson. You said a lot there. Jeremy. I know. I know. It's a little <laughs> bit of a rant. <laughs> so, um, uh... What, what specifically, I guess, or you want well, or, or you I think, to get it like to the, um, should you be concerned 365 yeah, on optimizing I think, food and cover? I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. 100%. Um, now, are some, let's talk about bucks. Are some of the bucks going to leave your property regardless that you've, you've done all this active management, you have optimized food and cover on your book. Yeah. Yeah. Some are going to leave and there's nothing you can do about that. And you have done nothing wrong. Bucks are individuals. Some are going to leave. Yep. And likely some are going to come in. You're going to have new ones come in. Exactly. So, but let's talk about does, for example. I I think it's too, I, I don't think you can make a statement that uh, is always going to be true on either side of this argument about providing uh, good nu- good nutrition and and will it benefit mm-hmm. in terms of here's the qualifier here in in terms of hunting. So we know through research that uh, during the warm season during summer, that is a very critical time of the year for both bucks, but especially for does. They have to have high quality food that is a so nutritionally demanding for them during gestation. They are growing fawns during the lactation, which is just as physiologically demanding. So why in the world would you want to deprive the does on your property of having good nutrition when we know through research the dividends that is going to to give you that particular fall as well as years and years down the road. Now, you may say, well, I don't have to worry about it. Here's why. Because I'm only managing 500 acres of ground and all around me, 360 degrees, other people are providing whether it be food plots or whether it be agriculture, 
Okay, you got a viable argument there. Maybe you spend your time then optimizing your property for cover and for setups for, for hunting in the fall. So it's more of a scale and a landscape issue. But if all around me is very, very food limited, especially during the summer, I can't fathom. I cannot fathom that that would not be a priority for you to want to develop high quality food on your property for does and bucks during the summertime, or, or, or you're missing out on an opportunity to improve deer quality. So the, the thing that kind of fishtails into that, and I agree hundred percent. And a lot of my properties are not surrounded by food. Thus my attraction to plant summer is that Jeff will say he would, he would agree. I think, no, I, he would disagree. He would say that if you planted summer crops in there, you're going to attract basically tons of doe groups into that area that will not leave then and your bucks won't want to be there. Well, I mean, that's his point. Yeah. The the way he explained it to us though, was that the reason that he's not planning, uh, you know, summer food sources is because it's so abundant in a majority of the whitetails range, whether it be on neighboring Mm -hmm. properties or on the property that you're actually managing outside of, you know, you providing anything just naturally it exists. These deer don't need us to survive. They don't need food plots. Right. Um, and so I think that's why I think he would agree is he's, he's saying you don't need more of what they already have. He's like, so you should man, you know, acknowledge the landscape and manage for except in his, his most recent stuff is that, which I'm not hundred percent. Those, those summer plots will attract a lot of doe groups to Mm -hmm. Bronson's quote there and that like they need that right they need healthy quality food and forage and protein for lactation and to get through that and that those doe groups establish themselves basically in that property and that essentially mature bucks won't want to be there likely besides rutting activity um because it it almost displaces them basically because think about in in most cases people would say a mature buck doesn't want to be a social animal right it wants to be off by itself um, I don't know, Bronson, I mean, thoughts? Well, uh, I think we should put our heads together and we need to form a hypothesis mm-hmm. and we, we will test that with our GPS data. Well, we're in an environment where we have both uh, agriculture in terms of just like in the Midwest, corn, soybean, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And why don't we just see where these bucks are hanging out during the summer? Yep. How about that? Yeah. How about also, I mean, how many, I mean, how do people in the Midwest often scout for seeing these big bucks uh, at the end of summer? Yeah, they're watching bean they're fields going and stuff. And glassing soybean fields yeah. and, they, and, and they're seeing where they're hanging out. So I, I don't know. I think we've got a lot of stuff mixed together there. The, the, the equation does not balance for mm-hmm. me at all. I, I understand yeah. the not planning on the, on your property. If you're surrounded by a ton of ag you know, but I also look at it two ways. Number one, um, smaller, more secluded plots, at least to me, seem to be perceived as safer for deer. Like they don't feel as vulnerable in a one acre or two acre bean field as they do a 40 acre bean field. Uh, number two is in what October, those crops are gone. And yet I could leave mine standing even through November, December. So when you talk about summer plots, not having a benefit, well, that is my also late season food source in most cases, whether it's corn or beans. So, 
you know, a, a heavily timbered area, I guess, is what comes to mind, like <clears throat> where you hunt in Kentucky and stuff. But <clears throat> maybe, Bronson, you, you can tell us a little more about um, wh- what areas uh, during the summer months or, or what parts of the, the country, I suppose, or what types of environments um, are, are going to have very little food for deer throughout these, these, these summer months. Like, what, what types of areas would those be? Well, it... it- it could be a lot of different areas. So I'll give you an example of one that's dominated by trees and one that's not. Yep. So as you mentioned, Jared, yeah, if you have a primarily a forested environment yep. and it doesn't matter if you're in the South and it's pine trees or you're somewhere else and it's hardwood trees. Yep. Um, if the canopy is closed, if the tree canopy is intercepting 80 plus percent of the sunlight you have very, very little food yep. in, in the, now, is that a big deal or not? Well, it's a really big deal. If forest is occupying over 90% of your property, and that's very, very common in the South that it is, then, then you are food restricted and deer are either going to get really small because they got to make the most out of a little bit of food and they're going to sacrifice body size because of that. Or if in proximity food is available, they're going to move to it. Now you might also go to Google earth and say, Hey, there's very little forest here. This must be providing tons and tons of food. Well, not if it's pasture. Mm -hmm. Sure. So let's go to a cow calf operation and you've just got grass. Well, deer, generally speaking, are not going to eat grass. So you're still in a food limited environment. Now you go to a place where agriculture is, is provided and it's the right type of agriculture. Yep. It's alfalfa, it's soybean, et cetera. Then you've got abundant food provided. Similarly, <clears throat> you could go to a managed forest where the canopy is open and use of prescribed fire, et cetera, techniques like that. And you can have an abundant amount of food within a forest. So yeah. it's just so dependent on your context. So those, those heavily timbered uh, areas are ones that I think you're pretty familiar with. And I understand a lot of my properties are, you know, I don't know what these deer eat. It it seems like, um, and obviously I'm not saying that they're going to starve to death. Right. I'm just saying in terms of what, what I had learned going through school was if I can provide high quality nutrition, especially protein in the summertime during lactation and antler growth that come fall, my deer are going to be healthier and potentially have yeah. The ability to express better antler and body weights. I'm sure that is right. And it seems like in, in those types of areas, like uh, timber management is going to be way more valuable and, and more achievable than implementing food plots, correct? For, I, for, I would say both. For summer food source, like if your property is 90% timber or 100% timber. You're saying because there's not existing openings to put a big plot in? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's my limiting factor on my Kentucky property. Now, fortunately, my neighbors that I'm now also having part of my property has tillable tillable ground. Just like my Ohio farm is 85% plus like big timber. I've got 10 acres of tillable through the bottomland. You better believe I'm going to just load that up with food. Um, so, so in that instance, I mean, wouldn't it make sense? If, so if you look at your, your property in Kentucky, I think is a good case study. You could say, Hey, it's, there is no food and sort of no ag, it's no ag, no, nothing. There's no ag. It's heavily timbered. Yes. You know, it seems like you would be in really good shape if you went in and did a pretty heavy, uh, you know, timber management practices, mm-hmm. opened up the canopy that would supply sufficient summer food. And then use the tillable that you now have access to, you know, to, to do a quality deer hunting food plot 
false, yeah. false food plot. I think the 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 caveats there are you probably have to do some sort of burn to get leaf litter and stuff and and really expose that seed bed. I mean, you're going to get some growth out of it. The other thing is as you get later into the summer and even though protein is, you know, it's still needed, you know, the later you get on like even greenbrier, forbs essentially are non-existent at that point you know, your, your plant quality is decreasing. So the other factor we haven't talked about yet, Bronson, and I think maybe this is a good fishtail is like soil fertility. Sure. Like the problem with that area is even though maybe I can provide some decent forage natively, my so- soil quality is trash. Um, Which and so would help with this well. So the nutrients in those green briar and stuff are, are going to be okay, but they're not going to be nearly as good as if I was in very fertile ground growing green briar or blackberry or anything sure. like that. Sure. Just so happens, <laughs> uh, Craig Harper and I and, and others, Marcus Lashley, and a lot of people are on this, um, we're working on an analysis to really try to drill down on that question. Mm-hmm. And th- this has yet to get published and, and peer-reviewed, so I'm always going to fall back on we we got to get it published sure. and see what other people think. But just our, our glimpse at the data, it seems to be very, very apparent that that soil quality does matter, but it likely matters for a different reason than you think. And okay. what I mean by that is you, you can take some of these same plants grown in, quote, poor soil and, quote, really, really good soil. And there can be a little difference, if any, but there can be a little difference in something like the, the concentration of phosphorus say Mm -hmm. oil could impact that what is far more important though is that soil fertility is affecting the the biomass the biomass uh, of that forage so rather than having a a species of ragweed or beggars like you know whatever deer plant you want to talk about in a poor soil it may never get above knee high mm-hmm. in good soil. It may grow over your head, right? That That's really the, the, the bigger impact there. And, and then also what we fail to consider the most overwhelming influence you can have is that you got to have deer plants. And so that, that might seem so obvious, but people ignore it. And yeah. what I mean by that is I've got poor soil, therefore I can't grow good deer. Well, I would rather be in an area that has quote poor soil and have forbs on the landscape yep. have yep. deer plants on the landscape. I'm going to beat out somebody that's quote in a good soil area, but they don't have a lot of deer food. Yeah, That makes sense. So composition so, of the plants and biomass of the plants being more of a factor than the, and it, it indirectly, but directly related to soil fertility. Yeah. So, so let, let me make that a little more tangible. Uh, and this is what was done in this project is that you can go to some of these areas that are classified as some of the worst soils in the U.S. and take a species, whether it be a green briar or blackberry, whatever, and you can snip the very growing tip of that plant, which, as you all know, that is what deer eat. Mm-hmm. They're concentrate selectors. They're picky about their plants. They're picky about what parts they eat. So they're going to eat the part of that plant that still has 18, 20, 25% crude protein grown in a very poor soil. The problem is the poor soil is just not generating 
as much biomass of that as a good soil would. That makes mm. sense. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting thing because I know even when I'm doing like TSI, regardless of the farm, like one of the first things I'm eyeballing when I'm about to cut in an area is do I see existing greenbriar or blackberry or, or things that I know are desirable from a deer uh, perspective? Because if I don't, then I don't know what, if anything, you know, what there's going to be seeds in this, in the seabed. Yeah. It could be multiflora. Who knows what it is. Right. So when I get into an area where I'm like, man, look at all this green briar. I know likely when I cut and open up that canopy, I'm going to grow more green briar, which or is what it. I want. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's a really good point, Bronson, because we focus on, we hear the soil fertility thing and into our early discussion, pre-podcast even, you know, Southwest Pennsylvania has good soils, but they're not astronomically good. And we're producing some, some amazing deer right now in this area and historically haven't, but management and different things like that have improved it. The soil composition hasn't changed. The fertility of that soil hasn't changed. Um, I think that it, it is, it's interesting that you say, you know, the composition in the biomass, because, you know, when you start to think about it logically, that just yeah, that makes sense. If it's not there, it doesn't matter how good my soil is. It's yeah. not there. That, yeah, that, that's right. And it's also, you know, think of it this way as well, is if you have, quote, poorer soil, you're going to have to be a lot more in tune with the deer density. Yeah. Because since you can't grow as much good food, you're going to have to be very careful to not overwhelm what plant population you have yep. with, with too many deer. Um, and then, you know, there, there's a great example, just getting back, Jared, to, to your comment is, um, yeah, on a large enough acreage, you know, I'm talking about be, beyond hundreds, I'm talking thousands of acres. Absolutely, you can just manage the forest and manage open openings naturally, and you're going to be just fine. However, if it's a more typical scenario where most of my land is forest and operationally, I can't get in there and have all of it managed optimally all the time. I'm going to use the word I use all the time. Now is the perfect time for supplementing that mm. with, with food plots and also recognizing deer cannot live on soybean alone. And maybe they can but they don't want to live right. on soybean alone. Yes, absolutely. You got the biomass, you've got a great plant. It's a nutrient delivery system, soybean plant, but they also deer are going to want to balance their diet with naturally occurring plants as well. Yeah. Every yeah. single plant is going to have different ratios of all these different nutrients and minerals that, that they desire to balance their nutritional equation within their body. And so by managing the forest and then supplementing with something that's going to be uh, there all the time, warm season or cool season food plots, you've provided everything a deer needs in that context. Not to mention, Jared, when you're managing that forest, depending on when you manage it, and that's why you should optimize your timing, is some of these spots might be a year old, two years old, three years old. Managing that forest, you can have part of it dedicated to cover and part of it dedicated to food sprinkling throughout that landscape with food plots, you got a great environment for a deer. I, I think I do have some, um, in the back of my head, some concern around the, the warm season annuals, especially in terms of, let's say my areas, which are a lot of poor soils, right? 
uh, and you mentioned deer density, you know, if I go in and I plant 10 acres of, you know, let's just say forage soybean, right? The amount of deer that I'm likely to attract from the very forested food lacking area around me is probably pretty significant. At some point that has to be in check with cover because, you know, they can't exist with only one and not the other. Um, and so, you know, there has been concerns and in this, I'm sure everybody's experienced this, who's gone out and tried to plant, uh, less than one acre soybean field is that it gets mowed pretty quickly. Um, so there has to be enough food sustainably to handle what's likely going to be a much higher deer density than is typically on that property. Yeah. You, you always have to be mindful that, that that's why there's no, we can't just write down in our directions about food plots for something like soybean, that it has to be greater than two acres or five acres right. or 10 right. acres, because there, there's so much context about what, what is your deer density? What is the availability of food on your landscape? If, if your little one acre or two acre soybean field is all they have to eat, then it, it's going to be demolished in, in, inside of a week. But, but what if you're in a place where your forest is managed or your openings are managed, then you might get away with a three acre soybean plot because my deer density is in check. Mm -hmm. There are alt alternative foods that deer want to eat and then they supplement as well with the food plot. So it, you can never just make this blanket statement of, of something like that. Jeremy, I completely agree. Yeah. Some places yeah. you can get away with a two acre soybean plot. A lot of places you can't. Yeah. <clears throat> is, is it fair to say that like, you know, after everything we've said here, you should still, you know, prioritize like the toughest times of the, of the year in terms of like a, a management. And so like everything we're talking about is like, I would manage a timbered area for, for summer food. And so if we did that with like a soybean plot or like, you know, fal something, some kind of a summer food source, um, ultimately, you know, if, if that food source, um, gets eaten during the summer and then dries up and does not exist in the fall and, and winter months, uh, you're still not going to have a desirable result, right? Like this deer are still going to leave. And so in, in that situation, wouldn't you uh, pr prefer to have like a, a winter or a fall food source in lieu of a summer food source. Ideally, I hear what you're saying. We, we, you know, we have it all, mm -hmm. but ultimately a deer is more likely to survive a summer with no food than a winter with no food. Um, generally that may be the case and that would more so be the case in your environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, winters can be tougher, uh, up there, but sure. I guess Jared, what I would say is if, if, all you have is that, you know, just very simply, all you have is that one acre. That's the only opening I have that's dedicated to a food plot. Then let's not just make it a warm season plot. Let's turn it into a 365 plot. And so once you start getting, once the, the warm season plot is, is dying, you know, it, it, it's grown, it's set seed, it's done. Um, then let's add a cool season planting to that. So, sure. so that you're offering both warm and, and cool season. Yeah. I think that's one thing that, um, you know, maybe in, I don't know if it's just recently or at some point it's kind of got lost in the discussion is perennials, right? We talk about alfalfa a little bit. We talk about clovers some, but you know, I would say most people who are planting clovers probably are disking them up. You know, they're, they're planting them in a, in a spring and then, you know, disking them up in the fall or they're planting them in the fall and disking them up in the next fall. Like, 
they're not truly managing a perennial for that year after year process, which is what it's made for. And we talked a little bit um, pre-podcast, you know, I've, I've planted a lot of uh, perennial white clovers in the past um, and I've had great success with them. I've got a new plot that I'm looking at some of these newer species of clovers that, you know, I was fairly unfamiliar with, which were um, Bersim and Balanza. And Bronson, correct me if I'm wrong, Balanza is actually an annual white. Is that how it's classified? Um, it, it's not, it is an annual, but not a white. Okay. It's an annual clover, like a crimson or bursine. Got it. Okay. And so like from my standpoint, the reason I'm looking at this is I just want to establish something in a new food plot that was just put in behind my house, like now for the, for the spring and summer, prevent erosion, provide something. And then my plan is likely to plant a fall food plot so I can disc that, uh, organic matter under from the planning and then have that. But you guys have done some research around those two, in, in, uh, I guess specifically, that maybe most deer managers or people planting food plots are not familiar with those species, I guess. Yeah, um, they are, well, they've been around for a long time, uh, but there are some, some newer varieties uh, that, that work really well for hunters. And uh, so we've done the, the Balanza for several years, as, as well as the Bersim. We're, we're evaluating uh, a Persian clover right now. Now, Persian clover has been around a long, long, long time, but it's different varieties and cultivars that, that have attributes that can work well from a cover crop on the ag side that can also work uh, in terms of producing deer forage. The, the, the biggest thing, Jeremy, in my opinion, is that I think there's always a clover or several clovers that are going to work well for everybody in North America. You just need to figure out what variety is going to work better on your property. So, for example, in my environment, our default here is that we have wet clay acid soils. Could be completely different somewhere else, mm -hmm. but you know, you know, the Midwest or in our Blackland Prairie region or something like that. But that particular clover, Balanza in this case, tolerates those conditions a lot better than some other places. Now, we might pick up and go to Virginia, where the default is not a, a clay, acid, wet soil. And you may find another clover that works so much better in, in your soil environment there. So down, down here, uh, those work very well. So, so now you, you think about looking at the maturation date and I'm doing a Southern context with clover, not a Northern context. Okay. So I'm, you plant it in the fall, it grows fall, winter, and it really comes into its own during the spring and early summer. Mm -hmm. So here, here's, here's three clovers, just for example, that, that you can stagger uh, crimson clover that probably everybody's seen has that beautiful, you know, bloom, the inflorescence in, in, in March and April here it matures earlier. So basically the clover, the annual clover lifestyle is once it produces that bloom and set seed, it, its life cycle is over and it's done Got and it, it dies. You, you want to think about the timing in your area of when that is gonna occur. Down here, crimson is gonna mature earliest, then a balanza clover. And these are about a month difference. And then finally a bursine clover. So if I wanted to pair a single cool season planting to last me all the way until June, 
then I can pair a cereal grain. I can throw in a brassica and I can put in something like a crimson clover and a bursine clover. And I've got food until June. Now in a plot adjacent to it or another part of the property, by June, my warm season plot is already growing. So I have seamlessly now provided forage from the cool season until the warm season. And so that's just, I don't think people consider the maturation date as part of this. You know, first and foremost, of course, of course, that clover has got to grow in your climate and your right. soil. But once you get beyond that, pair up and think about the maturation date so you can stretch that cool season plot out as long as you can. The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Stealth Cam. Dude, where would we be without our cell cams? I would definitely be divorced at this point. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, is I spent more time checking cameras than I actually did hunting prior to cell cameras. Now, at least my wife can enjoy me being in the comfort of my own home, buried in my phone, checking those pictures. Yeah, 100 percent. And dude, when it comes to uh, trail cameras and definitely cell cameras, reliability is, I think, the number one thing that we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else. We've tried them all. They make there's other companies that make good cameras, but We've the fact tried them all. is, yeah. is they all fail um, at some point. We have had such great success on a big variety. I mean, you and I ran over 30 cameras, cell cameras last year with Stealth Cam, and we hardly had any issues whatsoever. And the issues that we did have are probably self-inflicted. So, yeah. in terms of reliability, there's not a better camera on the market than uh, Stealth Cam. Ross, whether what you're considerations about do you think like? the everyday hunter or food plotter should take into consideration when it comes to sourcing seed. I know that I've had some really mixed results in terms of like last year I went to tractor supply and I bought some from antler King. I got some, uh, white Institute. I got all this different stuff. You know, as you're saying, there's different maturation dates. Um, you know, every di different, uh, whatever it would be subspecies of these different plants, you know, and also it seems like they're sourced for, for different regions, you know, or, or, or soil types, you know, how would somebody, how would somebody source seed effectively in a way to, to get these things to grow? Um, the, the seed source is, is really difficult. And like, for example, most uh, clover, so much clover is grown in, in Oregon and, and mm. in places like that in the Northwest. And then uh, they're sold and packaged to different distributions. And, and um, so the, the source may be difficult. How about maybe you can talk a little bit better about variety? Okay. Um, the one thing I would do, and that's something that we do for, for the purpose of, of research, but but then also um, I'm just amazed. And I did this uh, two days ago and we, we have a matrix set up at one of our uh, experimental areas. We have all these different clovers planted and, and it's really just amazing which varieties are working really well. And, and the time of year that they come into their own. And I was literally thinking, ju just looking at what we had planted, is that there's so much variation in which clovers did the best on our soil and, and the time of year that they perform best. In other words, when they are really actively growing, I think the best advice would be going to your, your, your co-op, your seed and feed, whatever, go through your state's or county level extension service. And, and why don't you do this as an experiment on your property? Cut up a, a food plot area, cut up an acre, and plant three, four, five, six different varieties of clover on that plot and observe for yourself 
which ones are doing well, put exclusion cages on them, just see which ones do better. And then now you are going to have, okay, this particular clover, man, it produced twice as much biomass than any other. And man, look at this particular clover. The deer wore it out compared to the other one. And man, look at this one, how it's May or June and it's still producing. Then you can come up really quick for a site specific mix of clovers that are going to do best on your property. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise you're, you're taking a guess is that I'm going to buy this mix and I'm going to try it on my property. And, and a lot of times it's going to work really well, but, but sometimes it won't. Well, Jared, until you disentangle that mix and know that I bought this, what, whatever, whatever commercial mix you bought, did you look at the tag? Mm -hmm. Do you know that there's two or three different kinds of clovers? Do you know how to identify them? Do you know which ones did better? I would say disentangle that, be more uh, calculated about which ones you plant, learn them and, and figure it out. And once you've done that, Jared, man, you, you got it. Yeah, I, I will for say, decades, you know what works well for you. I will say just a general observation. I've always just bought seed straight from companies that I'm familiar with mm-hmm. or that I've been marketed to as, as a hunter. Mm-hmm. I mentioned some of them earlier, you know, about Antler King from Tra- Tractor Supply and, and Whitetail Institute and and usually I buy them right from the company. Yep. And uh, I've had, you know, some some really good success and some complete flops. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and honestly, I'm not approaching it as uh, scientifically maybe as, as I should be or, or as you would in a, a research environment to where I'm documenting what was planted where, at what time, under what conditions. Mm-hmm. But just my general observation is I've had some, some flops, you know, where it's like there's nothing here. It's just literally disturbance. Like yeah. nothing happened. Um compared to uh some other guys that i know who are just going to local co-ops and getting st- standard mm-hmm. seed and you know maybe those blends of seed are, are not as catered towards whitetail they're kind of constructed it themselves or but chances are that local distributor or uh, co-op that they're getting seed from knows what will work for the soil in the area and I feel like they've had better success than I have. Hundred uh, percent, with some exceptions. I think uh, I've had really good luck with uh, the real world beans. Yep, Fan- beans. fantastic. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to you know more brassicas, clovers, yeah. oats, uh, those guys, and I've you know I've planted some food plots with Jed with seed mm-hmm. that he's bought. It's like a. 90 percent success rate as to mine is like 60 to 80. i mean think about it the assumption is you know and we've called it the buck on the bag for a long time and and i've had a lot of success with some of these plantings and not good success for some of these other ones but you know they're essentially packaging uh, a seed mixture and then saying anywhere that you can buy this thing it will grow yeah. that's a large very wide broad general statement you know, because look at what Bron- uh, Bronson's dealing with versus what we're dealing with versus what somebody in Washington state is dealing with. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and sure, like there are a lot of things like I joke that some of this stuff could grow in my truck seat. You know, yeah, you'll it'll germinate wherever in the bed of my truck. But ultimately, when you talk about that success in really being able to provide the maximum nutrition that that plant can for, for deer and other wildlife, yeah, I mean, it, it, it has to be regionalized. It's why there's so many different varieties of things like corn and soybean for different parts of the country because certain things grow well in these areas and don't in others. To generalize it across the board, you know, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah, the, the one way you can, you can never guarantee it, but close to it, the one way I can say, <clears throat> here's this, this mix and I guarantee you 
you're going to have a good stand is that uh, I've got 20 different seeds, sure. 20 different, you know, and, and then hopefully three of them, whether you're in West Virginia or Florida or Texas, yeah. maybe two or three of them will hit and you'll be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the better way to do that. But, but then if you did that, then you're, you're seeding, you didn't optimize the seeding rate of the plants that are going to grow well in your area. Mm-hmm. So why not figure out those three, four, five that grow really well on your property, focus on those and optimize those. Yeah. That's the way to go. I mean, pretty much the guarantee, and I don't recommend you use it or have annual ryegrass in there and dwarf Essex rape. If you've got those two in there, you're going to grow a food plot. It's just not probably what you're going to want. Yeah. 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 Gosh, <laughs> ryegrass. Of course yeah. it, 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 it is. It will grow in your truck bed. I've, I've seen it grow on concrete it, for a little while. Yeah. And flip it over, <laughs> flip moisture. that bag over and look at the mix, especially your throw and grows. All of your throw and grows have ryegrass in it. All of them. That's why it will throw and grow is because it's ryegrass, you know, and that's just, it's just one of those things. But well, listen, Bronson, we know you've got a appointment coming up. Um, but you know, we appreciate you coming on couple things before we let you go. Uh, number one, uh, probably by the time this comes out, the Craig Harper interview with you on Deer University will be out covering specifically what? Warm season food plots. So we did that. We're just going to drop right now where, where people are thinking about that. So we just cover all the ins and outs, why you need warm season plots, and then how to, how to make them effective in terms of what forages and successful mixes, et cetera. Perfect. And then people can still go to the Mississippi State University Extension website. You've got plenty of publications on a lot of the things that we just talked about as well. Absolutely. And then of course, uh, we were talking about buck bedding areas and things like that. Just uh, follow us on social media. We post all that to Facebook and Instagram and uh, sit tight. We're really going to start working on our YouTube channel. So check that out and please subscribe to that. But we're going to start adding a lot more videos uh, to that venue as well. Awesome. Well, Dr. Bronson Strickland, we appreciate you coming on the Hunter podcast and, uh, you know, keep, uh, keep cool down there in Mississippi here in the next few months. <laughs> that's that's going to be tough with summer coming along, but thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Always right. a pleasure, man. All right. See you guys. We'll see you. Awesome. Uh, what cool, I mean, a freaking hour goes by fast, you know, with a guy like that, just so many different wormholes you can dive into. And, you know, the cool thing about, um, you know, if you're talking about Don Higgins or, or Jeff Sturgis or Bronson, like ultimately like all of them are coming at this thing with a different point of view. You know, Bronson is first of all, very Southern based, you know, grew up in Georgia, now at Mississippi state, uh, and also very scientific in terms of this is what the research says and this is what's going to guide me. Uh, Craig is very much the same way. Mm. You get a guy like uh, Don who is, I think, very management-minded and also hunting-minded, but very management-minded, like really thinking about those planting strategically through the years. Um, and then you've got Jeff who is, I think, also very management-minded, but very focused on how can you be successful in those 90 days in the fall? Um, and so when you start to blend these things together, hunting, yeah, hunting focus, hunting focus. Yeah. I mean, that's what he even told us, uh, last time we talked to Jeff, he's like, dude, I don't think you realize 80% of my videos are hunting strategy. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm known as a, a deer manager, but what I do is <laughs> yeah. hunt strategies. Well, and so what's so funny about that is because like, there's a, 
the logical thing is to say, okay, Jeff Sturgis is a hunting focus and you're doing all this work because you want to succeed in those 90 days. In a weird way, though, you're also doing those things because you just enjoy them and you want to see those deer thrive year round. So it's like, where is that fine balance? Of course, I want to shoot a big buck come this fall, but I also would love to get big velvet bucks in July and August on my, and, and I think that you can, you know, and maybe it's different deer. Maybe you shoot a different deer in the fall than you saw in the summer, but I think you can develop a property in most cases to be a 365 supporting system. I, it totally depends on the property. Mm -hmm. I think you know, like it and surrounding properties. It, it is going to be probably even uh, more so. Your farm is yeah. a great example. You've got great yeah. bucks in the summer, and basically fall flat in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of the same opinions uh you know between all these different guys that we're talking to it just a lot of different um approaches um, sure and a lot of it has to consider like the landscape level that's something you and i've learned when it comes to you know these these rutting ranges and uh yeah we have to zoom out the, the bedding areas and the food that we're planting like it, it really has been helpful to to gain access to, to more ground through Mm -hmm. permission or just uh you know friendships with people that are well, sharing, sharing pictures talking and stuff. to people neighbors and or driving around and being like man like look how thick that is compared to my property well because dude more often than not you know that's why i struggle with this like uh i see where i, th I think i see where jeff is coming from on just not neglecting mm -hmm. summer food sources but wanting to prioritize sure hunting food sources or or winter food sources is that like do, do the likelihood of not having enough food in the summer i think is I think is very slim, you know, even in a situation sure. like you're talking about heavily. The deer canopied, are going to survive. There, the, there's the, no doubt in that. Not only will they survive, it's like, I mean, dude, there are, there's yards with bushes in them and they're like, yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's that if you think about, um, let, let's just put, there's the, a clear cut over the hill. You didn't know yeah, about there's a neighbor put, put does out of the side. The fact is, is that to achieve maximum nutrition for antler growth in the summer, that buck needs to be co consuming somewhere between 18 and 22% crude crew protein on average yeah he's gonna get 30 uh in the like may june time frame from a, a actively growing soybean plant same with like a green briar but then he's going to eat dogwood or something else and it's going to be 12 or 14 right so the averages start to come down and so if you think about it if he's if he's in an ag area he's going to be capped out in fact he's going to be shitting out protein that are, he can't are you process saying that, that these don't eat as much soybean in like July? Uh, no, but the soybeans protein quality decreases dramatically. So as that plant ages, the, the quality of the plant and nutrition and protein levels decrease as well. What about alfalfa? Uh, same. The longer it, it is, I've the older it is, them. the more it It doesn't seem like they now. stop eating it though. They don't stop eating it. It's just, they get less protein, right? So let's say it's, let's say it's 26% in May. By the time you get to August, that same soybean plant is probably at 16 to 17% crude protein. So they're not... What could you plant that's going to have a higher... Any plant that ages is going to uh, decrease in quality. That's why Bronson mm -hmm. talks about maturation sure. dates, yeah. because as they approach maturation, they are at their peak nutrition level. And then from there, they decrease in stemminess. Mm. Um, same with Greenbrier. Those growing tips of Greenbrier or, or Blackberry are very, very high in protein. But as that ages and as that gets more fibrous, the quality of the nutrition decreases. Mm. So as that summer 
drags on into July and August, you end up having um, less protein intake because the plant quality has decreased throughout the summer. Droughty conditions, plant gets older, more more stemmy, more fibrous type stuff. Um, Do you think that's true for like the forage soybeans as well? Like, hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. Now where Unless it switches, it where it switches is when that when that green forage dies, you know, and eventually turns yellow and brown is they go back to the pods and those pods will hold protein, but that's later in the year. Right. They're not going to be consuming those as much in the summertime. They're eating the leafy forage in the, in the summertime. Yeah. Which is why corn is not very beneficial from a protein level across the board. Corn at the most is going to have 10, 12% crude protein in most cases, eight. Yeah. So you're using that from simply a carbohydrates and a fat standpoint. Yeah. I mean, that, that's probably a part of the reason why, uh, you know, most people who would suggest planting soybeans for, for deer, and I know there's people that, mm-hmm. that are not for that, would suggest planting it later than uh, traditional... Conventional beans. Conventional beans. Yep. So you that know. you have it greener longer, you have that protein stretch out. Because at some point when a deer, and, and again, we're talking purely bucks, not does and lactation rates, but when that, when that buck hits mid-August in most cases, the calcification process in its antlers has already happened. No protein added are going to grow bigger antlers at that point. Like yeah. it's, it's stopped. Yeah. Um, it's really that from, from now, like the moment they shed and scab over till end of July, that is the critical time for protein intake for a buck to not only recover from the rut, but also to start to grow uh, antlers. And so I think when you look at those forested areas, yeah, there's plenty of food quantity and options, but the level of protein in most of those foods is dramatically lower than in an ag setting that has beans offering 25, 28% crude protein levels. Mm. Um, In the plants that are, to Bronson's um, point of biomass and and composition, if there is greenbrier, that is the pinnacle, right? Greenbrier, honeysuckle, some of these plants that are offering 20 plus percent crude protein is the pinnacle, but then it's going to get averaged with all the other things they eat that are 12, 15, 16% crude protein. And that average comes much lower than if it was eating pure ag. Sure. So I, I think that, and again, that's purely if I'm saying I can have an influence on that year's <coughs> Certainly antlers. makes it a lot harder. <laughs> it, well, and that's you know, where... It makes me grateful for like a situation on my farm. It's like, I've, you've, you've got, got the luxury of like, dude, there's ag everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to worry about that. Well, that's why that. you're seeing 150-inch three-year-olds is because those bucks through the critical times of rut recovery to growing antlers, and even when they were fawns and lactating from their their, their moms had the pinnacle protein available to them yeah where yours falls flat is that those deer then leave to go other places during the fall hunting season mm-hmm. right you're literally dispersing the highest quality deer probably in that area because of the way that your property sets up yeah and you know frankly though it seems to have to do more with cover and pressure than it does with food because i always have why they leave yeah yeah i would agree because I always have adequate. That's the mystery of like, who knows? Like, why? Why did they go? Right. Well, and that's just to put things in perspective. Is like, dude, you can you can have the food, um, you know, but if you know, that doesn't mean they're going to be there. No, and I think that's why, like, when you think about your area, it's complex. Number one, zoom out. What what's around you? If yeah. you've got ag all over the place. Sure, go and plant summer plots. Don't expect it to be flooded with deer. If anything, look at it as a benefit to next late season hunting. Um, but if you zoom out and it's a couple pastures, uh, maybe a crop field here, crop field there, and like nothing else, if you plant warm season annuals, 
um, you're going to draw in a lot of deer. And if you then can counter, because this is my plan, right? I'm not just saying I'm planting warm season annuals and when they eat it, they eat it. If I get to August and my beans are destroyed, I'm putting brassicas and stuff in. I'm mm -hmm. tilling them in and I'm putting. And so think about the rotation of as you're putting new stuff in to hopefully replace that summer warm annual with a cool season annual um, to then even having perennials or something available come out of winter into that early springtime. If there's not food around you, if food is your limiting factor, which I would assume that a lot of people listening to this, food is a limiting factor, you probably could manage deer with food 365. Um, if you have ag all around you, you probably need to be thinking more about cover than you need to be thinking about food. Yeah. And that is the big difference is, <clears throat> is when you hear these opinions coming in, it's where are these guys coming from? Jeff is coming from ag central located land in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Food isn't a limiting factor for him. There's thousands of acres of bean fields. I've got one 10-acre bean field within three miles of my property. That's it. You do? Mm-hmm. See, that's interesting because, I mean, dude, three miles is nothing. Like, I wouldn't be surprised at all if those deer, that's where they're at. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, th I think Jeff's got some valid statements. You know what I mean? I think it's just, I think in 80, 90% of the whitetails range, there's adequate food in the summer. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I see, I see his argument. I mean, I obviously mm -hmm. can see Bronson's too. Um, Do you think there's adequate food in the fall? Uh, no. Well, what do you mean? Do you think in most of the whitetails range, there's adequate food in the fall? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so what's the difference? <laughs> yeah. Good question. <laughs> yeah. That's, I guess yeah. that's where I'm at because like the first thing I'll say is like, obviously deer don't live on acorns, but for those 90 days, they do, they, they do. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. They do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing because you're right. It, it, I, I would agree with you. Like it, around here, there's plenty of places that deer are eating in the summer, surviving and growing big antlers. Same within the fall. If anything, it's the winter where they, there's like no food. If you had the food source in the winter, you'd kill every deer around. Right. Um, that is the limiting time frame. It's also the smallest time frame that you could actually like hunt a herd. Um, but like if how does that does that summer planting also double as that late, late season food source that is where I could be the herd influence? Yeah. And I think that's a strong argument for soybeans. And corn. And corn. Yeah. Like if you plant that stuff in the summer and maybe they eat it, maybe they don't, mm -hmm. who cares? You know, by the time yep. late season rolls around, yeah, you'll have that suit. That food I think one of the things that we'll work with, and it's cool having Bronson on and, and having a good relationship with those guys is, is formulating some of these mini hypotheses with him and say, listen, man, you've got the bucks collared. You're literally taking every eight minutes, you're taking a position on this deer. Here's what we want to propose. Where are these bucks living in the summer, in an ag area, in a non-ag area? Where are they living? And then- It's ag. That's the, uh, it's ag. Yeah. If there's ag within a reasonable traveling distance, like yeah. this has always been like a, an unknown. and then where do they go in the pre rut, and then where this they has go always been an unknown for me is like how you know we're thinking on a, a grand scale. Sure, yeah, yeah. How what's the what is a deer's ability to do that? Like, how, d I mean, according to Bronson, he's got movements and and range shifts of up to fifteen miles. That's mind boggling. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, when I lose a deer, I'm thinking that neighbor shot him, that neighbor shot him. Meanwhile, that deer could have traveled nine miles Easy. and set up somewhere else. Easy, dude. You know, nine miles seems big when you look at it on a map, but think about how long would it take you to walk nine miles? 
couple hours, hour or two. Probably 20 minute a mile. Literally all that deer has to do today is survive and get to where food is. There's nothing else on his agenda. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's nothing, you know, and so. Probably take you three hours or so to walk it. Sure. So even yep. if over the course of two, three days, a week, two weeks, mm-hmm. you know, they kind of transition into an area and maybe they're bumping around looking for food. Weird shift. Yeah, though. I just think I just think the likelihood of a deer not having enough food in a majority of the whitetails range during the summer and fall months is, which could be a major flaw in a lot of my hunting strategy when I set sights on a deer to hunt, because that deer could be a week away from shifting nine miles away, and I don't know it. Yeah, well, dude, that's why that trail camera for information is so critical. Mm-hmm. Dude, that buck I killed this year was is sitting right there on the table. Mm-hmm. Is the example of that. I monitored this property throughout, uh, you know, the entire summer mm-hmm. in, into the fall. And to the best of my knowledge, you know, that deer was spending very little time, if any, on that property until like the day I killed him. And there he was. And there he was. And it's because it's a rut, it's a rut property. Who knows thicket, how long he would actually there. stayed on there. There was plenty of food there. There was, yeah. you know. Why leave? Um, right. Exactly. He just wasn't there. He was somewhere else where there was another food source. We're going to dive into this stuff more, especially as we get into the season. We start watching some of these summer bucks. Um, but, yeah. Anyways, good podcast. Episode yeah. 70. Dr. Bronson Strickland from Mississippi State Deer Lab. If you haven't yet, I would go look up the Deer University podcast with him and Dr. Craig Harper because I bet it'll blow some minds. A lot, lot of knowledge there. Honestly, it's it's too much to absorb. as it, Like if, you know. It's so situational, though. Like, we can argue back and forth about your property or my property. It really And somebody is. else listening, it's completely irrelevant to. Yeah. So, yeah, go check it out, and we will catch you next week. It's Later. Seeing me-